you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. As we continue our series in the book of Exodus this evening, uh, we're going to take an in-depth look at both chapter 11 and 12. Uh, Last week, we looked at nine of the 10 plagues, and we're going to look at the last plague this evening. I saved the best to last. Um, And as we look at the final plague, I want you to remember that all of the plagues were about God revealing himself to man. He wasn't just revealing himself to Pharaoh. He was revealing himself to the Egyptians. He was revealing himself to the Israelites. He was revealing himself to Aaron and to Moses. And quite frankly, all these years later, he is revealing himself to us as well. And throughout the book of Exodus, we see God uh, repeating a certain phrase over and over and over. In the last couple months, as we've been going through this book, we heard it repeatedly. Uh, Before he would introduce a plague, while plague was being introduced, and even afterwards, he would say it repeatedly. And it was, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So by this plague, you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, the things that he was doing in the book of Exodus, the things that he was allowing, the incredible display of his power, the mighty signs and wonders, they were all taking place so that man would know that he was almighty and an all-powerful Lord. Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you know that? Do you know that he is the great I am? Everything you have need of, he is. Uh, Do you know uh, that he longs for you to know that, to realize the truth in it, and to know that there are no other gods equal to him? He goes to great extreme to reveal himself to man. He demonstrates his matchless power, his unparalleled might, his incomparable mercy and grace. He is the all-sufficient God. He is the one true God. And he cannot and will not be rivaled by any other. Do do you understand that? Or do you, like Pharaoh, refuse to yield to that reality and coldly harden your heart to that truth? That's a question I want you to ask yourself as you listen to this message tonight. Over the past couple weeks, we have seen a showdown take place between God and Pharaoh. We spoke several times about how Pharaoh was looked upon by his people and actually thought of himself as a god. We mentioned the many little g-gods who were worshipped in Egypt. The signs and wonders that God displayed, the plagues, if you will, were all part of God demonstrating his superiority and his supremacy. Not only over Pharaoh, but over all those other gods that were being worshipped. Do you know that God is supreme in power? Do you know that he is superior over any other god we would want to bow down to? And yet, sadly, I'm stunned, I'm shocked by the fact that Pharaoh, over and over and over, faced with God's power, faced with God's might, would continue to harden himself and stubbornly refuse to bow to God's lordship. And I marvel even more. At the mercy and the grace that God demonstrated to Pharaoh. 
Do you know that we serve a God of mercy and grace? We can mess up. We can disobey. We can fall. We can question him. And yet we are met with mercy and grace. God provided relief and gave Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to repent and obey his commands. But each time we see that as soon as relief came, Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over again. And each time was consistently met with God's mercy and grace. And now God is planning to introduce one last plague. And even with this one last plague, we will see that God warns him. He gives him a warning. He gives him yet another chance to obey, to repent, to believe that he means what he says. So as we begin in Exodus chapter 11 uh, tonight, I want you to just back up just a few verses to the last two verses in chapter 10. You'll recall that we ended our teaching last week uh, when, when Moses and Pharaoh were, were face to face in a confrontation and Pharaoh commanded Moses to get out. He said, I never want to see your face again and if I do, you will die. And Moses, I can just imagine him chuckling inside, saying to him, you have spoken well, I will never see your face again. Moses is confident that God means what he says. And so we pick up in chapter 11, and it's really important that you realize that this is not a new conversation, that this is just a continuance of the conversation that Moses was having with Pharaoh. It was like he wanted to say to him, you're never going to see my face again. But let me just tell you one last thing, one last message from God. And that's where uh, chapter 11 picks up. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. And let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. Then Moses says, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all of the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as like was never before, nor never shall be again like it. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog even move its tongue against man or beast. That you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and, the Isra and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Would you just pray with me? Father God, I just am so grateful 
for your mercy and your grace. I'm so grateful that you love your people. I'm so grateful for your word tonight. Father, I pray that you would fill my mouth with your words, that you would help my eye to fall upon what it needs to fall upon on my paper, that you would remind me of the things that I need reminded of, Lord God, that you would so download this message right from heaven, out my mouth, into the hearts and the minds of these people. Lord, I am mindful that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by your spirit. And so we give you your rightful place here tonight. And Lord God, I pray that you would be magnified, that you'd be exalted, Lord God, in this place. You promise, Lord, that where you're lifted up, you will draw all men unto you. And so we lift you up in this place tonight. Have your way, Lord, we pray. Illuminate your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to talk about this passage, it's important that you keep in mind that the plagues were an agent of divine judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. God told, his, told Pharaoh to let his people go, and he meant what he said, and yet Pharaoh refused time and time again to do so. And so God was about to persuade him, and who knows that God can be very persuasive when he wants to be. But I also want you to notice, as I said before, that judgment did not come. And hear me say loud and clear tonight, that judgment did not come before God gave Pharaoh yet another warning, another opportunity to repent, another chance to do the right thing. He is a God of such grace and mercy. And Exodus 11 and then on to 12, we will see the account of the deadliest plague of all. And yet this deadly plague is such a beautiful picture and we're going to see that tonight and next week we're going to see what a beautiful picture of, of the, our own Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. I hope that story comes through loud and clear as we begin to look at this passage. Look at verse 1 through 3. It says that Moses said he's going to bring, uh, to, the Lord said to Moses, he's going to bring one more plague onto Pharaoh and Egypt. And he said, I want you to tell everybody to go to their neighbors, every woman to her neighbor, articles of silver and gold. Go ask for articles of silver and gold. And the Bible says that God gave the Israelites great favor with the Egyptians so much so that it, when we get to the, the, the passages about the tabernacle, you will see that the things that they took from their Egyptian neighbors, that their neighbors gave to them, they used to outfit the tabernacle. It, they plundered their enemy. Do you see that? Some of you need to take a lesson here. The Bible says in... in uh, Proverbs, that, that when a thief is caught, he has to restore seven times, sevenfold. A seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. And, and what that means is when the enemy of our soul, when we really understand that he's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and we stop him in his tracks, he is required to, to provide full restoration of everything he has stolen from us. It is time, church, that we begin to plunder the enemy's camp. Every place that we see victory in the Old Testament, where, where the people of God uh, defeated an enemy, they went in and plundered the camp, the enemy's camp. They took the goods from the enemy's camp back. 
You and I need to understand there's some of you here tonight that have been enslaved or maybe your children or your grandchildren have been enslaved by the enemy and it's time that you understand that the enemy has to pay back sevenfold. We've got to put a demand on the enemy's camp and tell the Lord, the Lord promises that he will restore the years the locusts have eaten. He'll restore, that the enemy has to restore sevenfold. Complete restoration. Verses four through five, Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, go in out to the midst of Egypt. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant. It's a picture of no one being excluded. This plague was going to hit everybody and yet God was going to provide a way of escape, but they had to choose to take it. Nobody was going to be excluded from the highest official, Pharaoh himself, to the lowliest of slaves, the handmaiden. Even the animals were not going to be excluded. The firstborn would be affected by this plague. Would be, would be ta- the life of the firstborn would be taken by this plague. I just want to know why Pharaoh has hardened his heart so much that he could not realize that his refusal to obey God was going to affect everyone around him. You say, well, Rhea, why the firstborn? Remember in Exodus 4, when Moses went to Pharaoh and he says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn, your son. You see, God had given Pharaoh warning after warning after warning. Just do what I say. Avoid this divine judgment. Do what I say. And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. Verses 6 through 7, it says, There'll be a great cry throughout all the land, one like there never was before. But it says, Against the children of Israel, no cry shall be heard. In fact, a dog will not even move its tongue against man or beast. Because I want you to know that the Lord makes a a distinction between his people and those who are not. He references a dog because dogs are usually alert to every sound, even the slightest disturbance. We used to have a golden doodle who was just the apple of my eye. I loved him so much. His name was Armani. And Armani, somebody could be outside. We had good insulation in our house. I couldn't hear anything. But somebody could be on the sidewalk walking their dog, and Armani's ears would perk up because he heard even the slightest sound. He was always alert. And so what God is saying here is that Israel will be experiencing such peace that not even dogs will be stirred. The uproar is not going to reach the Israelite camp. There will be a different scene between his people and the people who are not. Oh, can I tell you, there should be a distinct difference between believers and unbelievers. People should look at us and be able to see the hand of God on our life, the favor of God on our life. He goes on to say in verses 8 through 10 that, 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 that even though Pharaoh is seeing all this stuff, that his heart is going to be hardened. Even though Moses and Aaron were doing all of these signs and wonders, that Pharaoh was going to continue to harden his heart and he would not let God's people go. And Moses got angry. The Bible says he stormed out. He was so angry because I believe Moses was angry because he understood how simple it would be. Pharaoh, do you understand that you could avoid all of this by just doing what God tells you to do? It doesn't have to be this way. 
It's the theme that we see all through Exodus, that God means what he says and that he expects obedience. You see, we we can't just hear what God says. We have to respect his authority and we have to respond in obedience. Like Pharaoh, we can choose to hear but harden our hearts and not obey. If you flip over to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, there's a verse there I'd like you to see. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Because you are hardening your heart and in accordance with the amount of hardness you have in your heart and your heart that refuses to repent and do it God's way, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Passion Translation says, because of your calloused heart and your refusal to change direction, when God speaks his word into our life, it's because he wants to get us to, 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 to hear him and to change direction and do it his way. That's what repentance is. It's a change of direction. I'm going one way, God says to go another, and I turn and do it his way. That way always leads to life. You've heard me say a million times, one of my favorite scriptures is your pleasant path always leads to pleasant places. Do you know that God's pleasant path, his ways always lead to pleasant places? I just wonder why Pharaoh didn't humble himself and just do what God said. It all could have been avoided. But he had a stubborn refusal to change direction. It was pride. It was stubbornness in his heart that kept him from doing what God told him to do. And so much pain could have been avoided. He says, who is God that I should obey him? I'm I in my own God. I will do it my way. And as I was thinking about, Mo, about Pharaoh doing this, I was talking to Leah this morning. And, and Leah was talking to me about Pharaoh and, and how we have that same heart. Do you understand? We can be every bit of stubborn. It's really easy to look at Pharaoh and say, why in the world didn't he just listen to God and do it God's way? He could have avoided so much pain, so much loss, so much heartache. God's pleasant path always leads to pleasant places, Pharaoh. And yet, how many times does God speak something to us? Does he give us a command from his word and we turn a deaf ear to it and harden our heart to it and do it our way? Who is God that he should tell me what to do? And yet we fail to realize that God's pleasant path always leads to pleasant places. Even faced with the warning about losing his firstborn, I'm stunned that Pharaoh continues to turn a deaf ear to God's word and hardens his heart. Let's go to chapter 12. Now the the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, I love this. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of the month, every man shall take for himself a a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. 
And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their houses where they eat it. I want to just stop there. There is so much in this passage that I, I, I'm mindful of time because I could sit and just preach on this till midnight. There's so much good stuff here. And, and so trust me when I say it will be worth your time and effort to take this home and, and tear it apart and really dig out the truth, the treasure that's in it. I can only touch on it for you. But I want you to see that it says this month in verse 2 shall be the, your beginnings of month. It's going to be the Passover. They're, they're going to learn something and, and God is going to teach them a lesson that he's saying it's going to be a new beginning. You know what? Just start a new calendar because your life is going to change so much because of what's about to happen that it's going to be a new beginning, a new start for you. You're about to leave slavery and go into the promised land. The day that you apply the blood, to, blood of the lamb to your life, to the doorposts of your life, he says, you get to start over. You get to begin again. Just start a new calendar. Your life is going to change so much. Just start a new calendar. Oh, can I tell you what? The day you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you apply the blood, the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of your life, I'm telling you, it is a new start for you, a new beginning. The Bible says you have to be born again. I have a grandbaby. Praise the Lord. I've got a grandbaby coming due in September. His projected birth date is September 4th. But the day little Micah shows himself up into this world, the day he takes his first breath, he's born into this world and the new calendar starts. And the Bible says that because of the blood of Jesus, that when you receive the blood of Jesus into your life, you get born again. And you see in this passage that God is saying to Moses, just tell them that they're going to have to start a whole new calendar because their life is going to begin again. Do you see it? Do you see it? First John 3, 3 says, truly, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, born from above. So God is saying what is about to take place is so important that we're going to stop the calendar, stop life as you know it, and begin again. Verse 3 on, it says, speak to the congregation of Israel. And, and he starts to, he, just look at this. There's so much good here. He says, on the 10th of, of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. If you underline or write in your Bible, underline A shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Underline, now it's the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. I just want you to see, this was mind-blowing to me. First of all, notice that he says that every man needed a lamb. Oh, can I tell you, if you're here tonight, every man in this room needs a lamb. And his name is Jesus. He is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. John the Baptist, when Jesus was coming, uh, making his entrance to begin his ministry, John looks up and sees him coming and he says, Look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can I tell you, you need a lamb. And his name is Jesus. Every man in this room needs a lamb. 
Notice that he says, the lamb shall be taken according to each man's need. Oh, can I tell you, you don't have a need that my Jesus can't meet. He promises to meet your needs according to, to, your, to his riches in, in, in glory. I promise you that every need you have, it cannot be. No man will ever love you enough. I promise you that. No woman will ever fulfill you enough. No child will, will ever fulfill you enough. I've got seven. It's a perfect number. If, if that could be found, I would have already, already experienced it. You will never be thin enough. You'll never be young enough. You'll never be pretty enough. You'll never be successful enough. You will never have enough money in the bank. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy but Jesus. There is a lamb that will meet every need you have, and his name is Jesus. He is sufficient according to your need, your every need. But here's what was so blind mind-blowing for me. Lord, thank you that you are Lord of my mouth tonight. Verse 3, a lamb. Verse 4, the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. Look at the progression. He's not just a lamb. Go find a lamb. Oh, where is a lamb here? Let's pick one out of the herd. Oh, there's a lamb. But he has to be without blemish, without spot. Oh, he's the lamb. And, and then you take him home and you live with him for three days and he becomes your lamb. Do you see how personal it gets? It's got to be a personal decision. I promise you, he has to be your lamb. He can't be your daddy's lamb. He can't be your, your husband's lamb. He's got to be your lamb. The sacrifice made for you. Then he says, I want you to keep it. Get it on the 10th day. In verse 6, he says, keep it until the 14th day. This is, this is just amazing to me. You see, this animal was going to go home and live with them. They had to receive it, oh Lord, into their home. They had to receive it into their lives. And this lamb was going to be set apart for their personal sacrifice. It becomes their lamb. But, but I just want you to see that, that, that they had to take it home because they were going to examine it. They, they were going to separate it from all the others. They were going to make sure there was no blemish. It didn't have any defects. It was, it was a perfect lamb. And so for three days, it was going to live with them. And they were going to examine it and make sure it was exactly what they needed, exactly what God told them to have. Oh, remember when I told you that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming? Remember, he was on this earth for, what, 33 years? And when he was 30 years old, he was launched out into his ministry, and he came out, and John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember that passage? How long did Jesus, from that point on, be on this earth? Three what? How long was the Lamb supposed to live in the house? Three days. What were they supposed to do in those three days? Examine it. Make sure there wasn't any blemish. Make sure there wasn't any defect. Oh, when Jesus launched into this world, he lived among men. He was going to be the spotless, sinless lamb who came to take away the sins of this world. And he lived among us. And we got to examine him. We got to look at him. John says, my hands have touched him. My eyes have seen him. Let me, let me testify to you what he was like. Do you know that when he went before Pontius Pilate, do you know what Pontius Pilate said about him? I can't find any reason to accuse this man. He's not guilty because he was the sinless, spotless lamb. Are you seeing the parallels in this passage to your Jesus? 
He was without blemish. He was spotless, perfect sacrifice. Notice that they were going to kill the lamb. He was going to stay with them for three days, and, and then they were going to kill him. And it wasn't the life of the lamb that would save them. You know, Jesus came, and he lived, uh, and he had disciples who, who he lived out loud before. He gave us an example by the way he lived. But you see, it wasn't his life that we needed. It was his death that we needed. It was the blood of Jesus. It wasn't just the death. It was the blood that was shed for us that we needed. If you turn over over to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 reads like this. You see, the life of the body is what? In the blood. And I have directed that you are to take the blood and offer it on the altar to atone for your lives and cover your sins. It is the life flowing in the blood that atones for you and covers you. Am I losing you? Is this too deep for you? Tell me, because I'll explain it more. I, I know that I have to go fast, but I promise you there is so much good truth here. You, you've, got to, you've got to take some responsibility and go back and study this. Do you see the picture that God is already in the book of Exodus? I can take you back to Genesis and, and show you the scarlet thread that starts in Genesis and leads up into the New Testament, the need for Christ to come. And we are seeing it in this passage Verse 7 says, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they eat. I, I want you to see that the blood needed to be applied to the doorposts of the house. The death of the lamb would mean nothing if the blood was not applied. The lamb could have been killed, uh, but its blood never applied and, it, and they would not have been protected. They could have chosen not to apply the blood. And what would have happened? The death angel would have gotten them. They would have received the divine judgment instead of divine mercy. Notice it says, put it on the doorposts and on the lentil. Do you, do you see that? Put it on the doorposts and the lentil. Are, are you seeing the, the picture that I'm drawing there? Smack it on the lentil, put it on the doorposts. The blood is going to run down. What's the picture that's being drawn there? The cross. And it's going to protect you from divine judgment. Oh, can I tell you, the cross of Calvary protects people who were following hard after God. They were slaves, slaves to a wicked man, slaves to Pharaoh. They did nothing to deserve this. You and I did nothing, 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 nothing to deserve it. It was the grace of God and his mercy poured out for us on the cross of Calvary that set us free from being slaves to sin and the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land waiting for us in heaven. Do you see the picture here? Do you not know that you were slaves to sin? The Bible says before we knew Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We had no hope. We had a cruel taskmaster. And Jesus became our deliverer. He became our Passover lamb and led us out of slavery into life. Verse 7 says, you shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost. I looked up that word put, and it's fascinating. It means to give or to put or to set. But listen to this definition. To exchange, to entrust, to yield, to be entrusted to. Oh, when we put the blood of Jesus 
apply it to our life. We exchange our life for his. Remember, the life is in the blood. That's what Leviticus told us. And when we yield to his will for our lives and trusting what he did on the cross of Calvary, when we put the blood of Jesus, apply the blood of Jesus to our lives, we shall be saved from death and be delivered out of bondage and cruel slavery into life eternal. Hallelujah. So he says, now that you did that and you killed the lamb, notice that, that the whole assembly is going to kill the lamb at twilight and, and they're to put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil on the house. And then verse eight, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Don't eat it raw or boiled, but roasted in the fire. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Oh, there's so much there. He says you have to eat it. Don't just look at it. Don't, don't just apply the blood to the doorpost. You need to eat it. Eat, eat that flesh. Jesus says at one point he had a bunch of people following him in John 6, verse 53. It's fascinating. Everybody thought he was, you know, he was just a, a rock star. And, and he's saying things, and all of a sudden he says something that offends people. And everybody starts to leave. And, and this is what he says. He says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. And the disciples said, Whoa, this is a hard saying. <laughs> and Jesus said, Are you offended by this? Because they didn't understand what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about literally eating his flesh or drinking his blood, but that's what they thought. And scripture says, From that time, many, not a few, Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. When he says, you have to eat my flesh, do you understand that when I eat, I feel my body? I eat to, and I receive food into my body to, to strengthen my body, to, to uh, empower my body, to, 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 uh, to give my body nutrition and what it needs to thrive. And so when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh, what he was saying is, unless you receive into your life what I did on the cross of Calvary, unless you apply it to your life and receive, just like you need physical uh, food for uh, physical strength, you need spiritual food for spiritual strength. And we have to eat of it. We can't just apply the blood and say, that's it. Notice he said, don't boil it. When you boil, Leslie, you, Don went to the doctor today and he said, I boil my, my um, broccoli. And what did she say happens when you boil the broccoli? All the nutrients get boiled right out of it. And so what's left is really, it looks like it's something good, but it's really nothing. <laughs> Everything good is removed during boiling. There are days that I think, you know, I could pack Monday night if I would just boil down my message a little bit. If I just removed some of the nutrients, what I know you need for nutrients, if I just, you know, boiled it down a little bit, <laughs> I refuse to do that. He said you have to roast it. Roasting is such a picture of suffering. It's a picture of a suffering Savior. <laughs> Dave made some... Um, 
beef tenderloin. My brother-in-law was over for dinner the other night, and I had marinated a tenderloin all week, and Dave is a master griller, and he doesn't normally have any problem with grilling, and, <laughs> but he came in, and, and, and I let the meat sit for a little bit, and then I went to cut it, and it was raw on the inside, and I like tenderloin rare, but this was super-duper looper rare. It wasn't finished, <laughs> and we had to put it back on the grill. When Christ was on the cross, blood posts, or door posts, lentil, cross, blood being poured out for us, what were the last words that he said when he made that sacrifice? It is finished. Well done. The sacrifice is roasted in full, if you will. Reascendeth is finished. Leslie Sindet finished, paid in full. Roast it. Don't boil it. Notice it says, don't break any of its bones. Do you know that when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, not one of his bones were broken? They normally would break the bones of, a, uh, of someone uh, that's being crucified because they, they would fight death, and so they break their bones. They'd push up so they could extend their diaphragm and get air at, because you suffocate on the cross. And, and so it, they'd have to break their bones so they couldn't push up, and they'd suffocate and die quickly. But Jesus didn't have one broken bone. He knew that he was born to die. He didn't fight death. Oh, church... What would our lives be like, Rhea, if you stopped fighting death? Turn over to John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who took that lamb and received it into their home, to all those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God to those who applied the blood, who were willing to eat his flesh. We have to be willing to receive him by faith into our lives. Notice it says that they needed to eat that meat with bitter herbs. You say, well, why is that important? The bitter herbs, and I'm hoping, I, I, I'm just going to put this out there. I, I'm not making you a promise, but I'm 99% sure that we're going to do a Seder meal next week, and I'm going to explain to you the Jewish Passover and, and how they celebrated and what it looks like. Uh, don't take my word for it. I'm just putting it out there. It may or may not happen. We've been in touch with a Jewish rabbi. I'd like him to come and do it for us, but I may end up doing it my, myself. Yeah, Messianic rabbi. Um, so, but You'll see, if we do a Seder meal, that, that they eat bitter herbs to celebrate the Passover. And, and this passage says, make sure that you do it every year, that you celebrate this meal with, with, with the generations to come, with your family, year after year after year. Make it a memorial. Do it so you remember. The bitter herbs were, were so that they could remember the bitterness of their slavery. They had spent 400 years, 430 years in slavery, cruel, nasty slavery in bondage. <laughs> and yet I, I had to ask myself this week, why in the world did they need to remember that? Anybody besides me have no trouble remembering your pain. I'm telling you, I have no, I have no trouble. And I don't need to eat bitter herbs to say, Rhea, I've had some bitter stuff happen in my life. So why did they? 
Why did God feel so important that they ate those bitter herbs every year? It would be passed down to generations who had never known slavery. So why would they even want to eat bitter herbs? And then I got to thinking about myself and some people I counsel and people I know and, and how you can be in slavery and cruel bondage and hate every minute of it and so cry out to God that you want to be free and that he miraculously delivers you and he takes you into a place of great victory and, and leads you into, in, into a place that's free from that bondage, free from that slavery. And, 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 and like the Israelites, you'll see in a couple weeks after they get out of Egypt, they, after a little while, when things get hard again, they start whining and say, it was better off in slavery. We were better off in Egypt. We had great leeks and onions when we were there, and all we have here is this quail and this manna. <laughs> and slavery starts to look good again. And you want to say, how crazy are you, Israelites? It was cruel slavery. You were beaten. You, were, you, were, you had cruel taskmasters. What are you thinking? That you would want to go back there when God is leading you into a place that's flowing with milk and honey? And yet, are we any different? God delivers us. He says, don't do that. I'm going to take you to a place of great victory. I'm going to work powerfully in your life. And what do we do? You get far enough away from it, and it doesn't seem all that bad anymore. And you start to look back with longing and think those were the days. We work, my husband and I work with men who have pornography addictions or sex addictions and we have seen marriages restored, powerfully restored. People who were filing for divorce, who were living in separate, separate homes, we've seen them come back together. And the thing that just rocks my world is they can go through such pain where they're crying out saying, Rhea, I'll do whatever it takes to get my wife back. And, and I hate what it, this, this addiction did to me. And I don't ever want to go back there. And then life gets peachy keen honky-dory for them again at home. And six months later, we find out they've looked at pornography again and I want to shake them silly and say, what are you doing? Slavery. That is slavery. It is bondage. It's going to destroy you. And they're thinking, it's just tasty again. It wasn't really as bad as I thought it was. It's just a glance, Rhea. It's just a glimpse, Rhea. It's going to destroy you. God has a place of great victory over here for you. Why would you ever want to go? I got some bitter herbs for you. Because you need to be reminded how bad that was. And so every year, they had to eat those bitter herbs and be reminded of slavery. He says, don't let any of it remain until morning. Eat it all up. And if there's anything left, burn it with fire. Again, it's a picture of the complete sacrifice of Christ. It's a complete sacrifice. It's a finished work. We cannot pick and choose what part of it we want to indulge in, eat of, receive. You know, Lord, I, I want the blood flow stuff. I don't want the death angel to get near me. I want to know I'm going to heaven. But that obedience stuff, can we just talk about that? You can't eat some. You have to eat all. You can't leave some for later. You know what? I am only 30 right now, and I just want to have fun. But I want to know I'm going to heaven. So can I just sell out later on in life and just eat a little right now? He says, no, you have to eat it all. You have to consume it all. 
My very favorite part of the entire passage is in verse 11. He says, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and your walking stick in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Oh, Lord, help me do this justice. <laughs> when I first was studying it, the last two couple weeks, I wrote in my notes, it's a picture of being quick and ready to obey. God says, let's do this, let's go, and you are ready to go. And I think that's what it is. But tonight I was sitting out in the parking lot, praying and looking over my notes, and the Lord said, I want you to live ready. Be prepared to leave at any time for the promised land. You don't know when you're going to be summoned. You see, they were to have their, their cloak tucked into their, their belt. They were to have their sandals on their feet. You never wore sandals in a, in a Jewish household. You, you always put them on the door. And, and then I want you to have your walking stick in your hand because when I summon you, we're going to break camp. We are going to leave and head for the promised land. And as I was sitting in the car tonight, the Lord said, your promised land, Rhea, is heaven. And I want you to live ready and prepared that at any moment the trumpet will sound or at any moment I summon you home and you are ready to go. You are ready to go. Oh, that demands more of a hallelujah than what I got because that is so good. That is so good. Guys, wake up. We've got to understand the urgency in this. So verse 12 through 13, oh, good stuff. I know I need to be finished at 8, but I promise you this will be worth it. He says, it is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12 says, oh, stay with me here. Look at your Bibles if you brought them. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Now, look at what he's saying there. He's saying, if you've applied the blood to your doorpost and to the lentil, are you following me? If you've killed that sacrificial lamb and you've applied the blood to the doorpost, if you haven't left over any sacrifice, if you've burned what remained, and I pass over to execute judgment, I'm going to look and say, oh, is there a doorpost? Is there blood there? I'm going to pass over them. Oh, no blood post there, no blood there on that doorpost. I'm going to have to execute judgment. The death angel is going to come. So I either will pass through or I'll pass over. Do you see that? So now look at those words, pass over. I looked it up. It says, if you look up that word in the Hebrew, it, the definition is exemption. It means immunity from penalty and calamity. So if I see the blood on the doorpost of Leslie's house, the death angel is going to say, exemption, immunity from calamity right there. She's got blood. Now listen to this one, or I'm going to pass through, if you look that up in the original language. I'm not making any of this up. Look it up. It means to alienate, to vanish, to perish, to cease to exist, to become an invalid. God is saying, I want to pass over, but to those who do not have the blood of the Lamb applied, I'm going to pass through. And everyone no exceptions made is going to be affected. 
I want to pass over. I've given you a way of escape, but you have to take it. It doesn't have to end badly. There's a way of an escape, and it involves the blood of a lamb. A lamb that must go from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. You know I'm high on God's name, the great I am. Who should I say sent them? Tell them I am. You know I preach that. I love that name. I have a friend whose husband doesn't like the way she looks. Critiques are pretty strong. Puts her in a devastating place most of the time because he is so critical of her and of the way she is. This week I was reading God saying, who shall I say sent them? And God says, tell them I am that I am. I, I said to this woman, the next time he critiques you, you say to him, I am who I am. This is who I am. Deal with it. Okay? So after I said that, I heard the Lord say, and that's my response as well. When you don't think I'm doing something right, Bria, when you're critiquing the way I've done something and you say that's not fair or that's not right, I am who I am. This is who I am. And so when I read, this is God's, when I wrote in my notes, this is God's plan of salvation. He is who he is. I am the Lord, he says. I am the Lord. This is my Passover. I make the rules. And the rules are, unless the blood of the lamb is applied to your doorpost, the death angel's coming. Divine judgment is coming. But if you apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of your life, the death angel will pass over and you will not be alienated from God. You see, that's what death is. That's what hell is. It's eternal alienation from God, from life, <laughs> torment. But you see, heaven, the promised land, what did Passover mean? Exemption, immunity from penalty. Oh, is that good or what? That's God's way. And you and I don't need to be affected by him passing through. He is willing to pass over, but he's going to look for the blood of Jesus. You see, when God sees the blood of Jesus applied to the doorposts of our life, he passes over us in judgment. We deserve hell, but he passes over us and gives us heaven. Do you see it? We don't have to fear death anymore if we have the blood, the blood applied to the doorposts of our life. Can you imagine the Israelites? You see, they were watching everything that God was doing. They had seen him execute judgment over and over. He, they knew he meant what he said. And so when he said, I'm going to go through the camp and I am going to kill off the firstborn, can you imagine the firstborn of the Israelites in the Israelites' house? Can you imagine, Dad, we better really check out that lamb. Are you absolutely positive there's no blemish? I was in the shower today, and I was thinking about my daughter, Brooke. She's about to have her firstborn child. Her husband is a firstborn. Her daddy is a firstborn. Her brother is a firstborn. And I thought to myself, my goodness, think about how this would affect our family, how it would affect Brooke. If the death angel came and took the firstborns in her life, she would lose her husband, her daddy, her brother, and her son. Do you see it? This was, this was people were affected by this, deeply affected. And God was saying, but no, you don't have to be. Here's the answer. 
Get a lamb. Apply it to your life. Receive it. Eat it. But can you imagine the Israelites' household? Even though he said, I'm going to show a distinction between my people and yours. <laughs> can you just imagine, Daddy, are you sure that's without, did you apply every place he said? Because he means what he says. See, you don't have to live in fear like that. Because God has made a way and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father except through Christ, through the blood that was poured out for us. But you see, you don't have to fear death anymore. I was with my mama when she died. My mama loved Jesus like I can't even tell you. And, you know, I was like, she probably could have jumped to heaven because she loved him so much. And she had no fear in death whatsoever, whatsoever. And it's because she knew the blood was applied. And she knew absent from the body, she was going to be present with the Lord. She knew that when she took her last breath here on this earth, she was going to be present with him in eternity. And there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, have you ever heard the story of the bumblebee and the little boy? There's a little boy who was deathly allergic to bees. And, and if he uh, ever got stung by a bee, he would go into anaphylactic shock and it would kill him. And so they were always kind of a little afraid that he would get stung. And so one day his dad and him were driving down the road in a car and there was a bumblebee in the car and he started to scream because he knew uh, what would happen if he got stung by this bumblebee. And, uh, and, and so he was really afraid and his father uh, quickly reached out and, and grabbed the bee against the windshield and he grabbed it in his hand and squeezed it. And when he squeezed it, he released, he opened his hand to release it and the bee flew away, but it was still in the car. And so it made a beeline for the little boy in the back seat. And the little boy just like screamed that he was going to get stung. And the father said, no, honey, look. And he opened up his hand and the stinger was in his hand. And he said, that bee can't hurt you anymore. I took the stinger from it. Its stinger is in me. You see, that's what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. The Bible says that he took, there is no sting in death anymore for you and me. He took the stinger of death that we deserved into him. And now we aren't allergic anymore. Can I tell you, it can't hurt us anymore. Absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. But here's the stipulation, you have to apply the blood. You have to receive the gift that God gave to you in Christ Jesus, the perfect once and for all sacrificial lamb who was without blemish, without... Uh, Oh, he was perfect in every way. And his blood was poured out on that cross for you and me. And it was roasted because he said it was finished. You don't get to put that back on the grill. It's finished. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? So lastly, in verse 14, he says, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast, an everlasting ordinance, and this will be a memorial. If you look up that word memorial uh, in the Hebrew, it means a reminder or a remembrance. Can I ask you a question? Do you remember the day that you applied the blood of Jesus to your life? If you can't give me a day, then do it today. You get a whole new start on your calendar. You get to begin again. 
You say, well, Ria, I believe in God. Well, you might believe in God. Even the demons in hell believe in God. But have you applied the blood? Make it today if you haven't. That word, memorial, uh, it comes from the root word meaning to call to mind or to recall. This is fascinating because as we go on through the book of Exodus, you will see that every time God does this amazing thing, he will look at the, the, at the Israelites and say, make a memorial here. Build a memorial here. When, when they cross the Red Sea, and you're going to hear that next week probably, or the week after, you're going to see that God lifts up the Red Sea, and they go through on dry ground. They don't even get any mud on their feet. And they get to the other side, and God says, now build a memorial. You know why he says that? Because the word means to recall and to act accordingly. You see, God knew they were going to have to remember the, 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 the miracle that he had just performed in their sight. And he knew that as they went through the desert and life got hard, they were going to forget how powerful he was. And so he was saying, you're going to need to come back here and revisit this. You're going to have to remember and, and, and to act accordingly. So build a memorial. And so when he says Passover, the Passover meal is going to be a memorial. He said, I want you to recall it and to act accordingly. To understand the stingers in me, you don't have to live in fear. To understand that you don't want to go back to slavery for anything because you've been delivered and set free. It's a memorial. And I want you to recall it and act accordingly. Verses 15 through 20 are super good because it talks about how... Um, there can be no manner of work done on them, that you just have to eat what's prepared and observe the feast. I love that because he's saying, I just want you to feast on what I did and not work for it. Can I tell you, you've been saved by grace and not by works. You don't have to work for this salvation. Oh, it's such a great salvation and it's received by faith, by grace through faith. I have so much more that I want to talk to you about, but I think we'll wait and, and, and get to that next week. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the unleavened bread and what that means. Um, but but I, I just really uh, want to be mindful of time tonight, but I also want to flesh out this message for you. I need to ask you if he is your Passover lamb. Have you applied the blood of Jesus to your life? Do you want to? Can I tell you that God so loved you? that he gave his son to be the once and for all sacrifice for you. And the day is coming, I promise you it is. We are in a time of grace right now, but the day is coming when God is going to pass through with divine judgment. And unless the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, he will not pass over you. He will pass through to alienate you. You've got to have the blood of Jesus. And as he passes through, he will say, oh, there's Karen. She's got the blood. Immunity, immunity, immunity. And there's Leslie. She's got the blood. Exemption. But what will he say when he comes to your house? Is the blood applied? I want Ian to come forward and, and just lead us in a closing song. But before he does, I need to ask you, I can't let you leave with a message like this without giving you the opportunity to apply the blood of Jesus. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's eternal 
separation from God. That's why the eternal judgment has to come. The divine judgment has to come because the wages of sin, what we do wrong when we disobey God, like Pharaoh, and we don't repent and apply the blood, there has to be judgment. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Passover lamb.